Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 39. We are back to the life of Joseph. We left off in chapter 37 with Joseph being sold to some Ishmaelite slave traders. And so he had a journey to make. Um, imagine his life almost killed by his brothers, then sold into the hands of slave traders. Then he makes the trip, the long trip from Palestine to Egypt. And that's where we left off. It's interesting that Psalm 105 gives us a little bit of an insight about his experience in that journey. Most of the story of Joseph goes to the, the actions that happen in his life as he finds himself in Potiphar's house and onward. But there is that trip where his whole world is being turned around. And in Psalm 105, it says, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. So he's brought as a slave to be sold on the auction block. And that's where we pick up the story. Genesis 39, here as I read God's holy word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight, in his sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, he had, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She came, he came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, 
And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made, made it succeed. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for your holy word. We ask now for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to work so that we might understand what is true and that what you would have us to do in light of what we're reading, what we're studying here. Oh Lord, your word is so grand in what it describes down to the very details, the way you've woven these things together through time, all realized in the person of Christ, even the story of Joseph. We thank you for this. Pray for your encouragement to be upon your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to endeavor to keep this sermon as simple as possible. The account of Joseph's life is really so vibrant, so powerful, what we have just read, that the preacher needs to be careful not to get in the way. Now, lest you think I'm being lazy by saying this, listen to a veteran preacher who preached some hundred years ago, towards the end of his ministry, wrote a commentary on Genesis, R.S. Candlish. And this is what he says to begin his sermon on this passage. For the most part, indeed, comment serves rather to weaken than to enforce the teaching of the Spirit in this matchless biography. It really tells its own tale and suggests its own moral throughout, so clearly and so pathetically that it might seem best to leave it to make its own impression undiluted and unadulterated by the reflections, however sound, of ordinary exposition. Most plainly, most clearly, we see in this episode, in Joseph's life and in the whole of his life, the root of all blessing and strength comes from God's special favor his special presence with his people, his grace shown to us. We see this in the opening phrase and the final phrase of the chapter. God is with Joseph. He's with him in the blessings and he's with him in the testings. He's with him in the resisting of the trials and the temptations. He is with him throughout. And again, he's with him even in the testings. He brings him into the testings, into these situations, and he is with him. And that is woven throughout Joseph's life, especially here. I want you to notice this key phrase that helps us understand the author's intent, what the author is revealing to us about these events in Joseph's life. God is with Joseph. Chapter 39, it begins with the key phrase. Look in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. A second time, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. We have what is called an inclusio. The opening verses make this phrase, state this phrase twice, and then the final verses do it again so that we know that everything in between should be qualified 
by our understanding that God was with Joseph. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, because the Lord was with him. Four times in the passage, two at the beginning, two at the end, the Lord was with Joseph. And literally, this is Yahweh was with Joseph. There are other names for God used in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis even, could have been Elohim. But Yahweh is the personal covenant name, the the fatherly name for God that his covenant people referred to him as. Yahweh was with Joseph. This is God's covenantal favor shown to Joseph. Through Joseph, we see the beginning of the wider fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant now starting to happen. It didn't happen this way in fullness with Abraham, nor with Isaac, either with Jacob. Think of those words spoken to Abraham back at the beginning of his calling in Genesis 12. God says, I will make you a great nation, Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He eventually makes Joseph's name great. He makes Joseph to be a blessing not only to his own family, to his people, but also to Egypt. And by extension, we'll come to see to the world, both immediately under a time of famine and then ultimately through the preservation of the Jewish people from which the Messiah would come. How is this possible? The Lord was with Joseph. We're not left to guess about why Joseph was so impacting as an individual. It says in verse 3, The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There's no question. This is not about his personal managerial skills, although he had them, but they were given to him by God. So even his gifting was granted by God, and God caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Down in verse 23, And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord being with Joseph refers to his special covenantal faithfulness towards his children for the purpose of exacting his plan. And the Lord is causing circumstances to work out for Joseph's good and for God's ultimate glory. His special, favorable, guiding presence bringing Joseph through times of blessing as well as times of testing. God never stops being with Joseph. And you'll notice that the circumstances of his life change dramatically. But God's presence does not change. When blessings come upon Joseph, it's because God is with him. When testing and trials come upon Joseph, God is with him. For you, brothers and sisters, the circumstances of your life do not stop God from always being with you. You are better off being a prisoner in a jail and have God with you than be the ruler of a vast kingdom and God not be with you. You're better off being in a hospital bed if God is with you compared to being in perfect health without God. You're better off having no friends on this earth and have God with you compared to enjoying the fame and cheer and honor of all people around you but being separated from God's presence. 
How did Joseph endure being separated from his beloved father, from his beloved baby brother? How did Joseph endure the pain of separation like this? How did he endure the trip from Palestine to Egypt and all that must have been going through his mind and heart? How did Joseph handle entrance into this foreign country? Imagine him coming upon with the pyramids and all these, uh, the views of the religious system of the Egyptians and everything that they were doing, and he was a slave. How could he handle all of this? The Lord was with Joseph. Now, let's see the blessings that come from the Lord being with Joseph. God blesses Joseph in many ways. In verse 3, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And look at the extent of this. So Joseph, because of this, found favor in the sight of Potiphar, and he attended Potiphar. Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of everything. Now, right off the bat, a foreign slave sold in the auction block usually found themselves in the field or hard labor somewhere, yet to be bought by an upper-class Egyptian like Potiphar. But Potiphar had fields as well. Joseph could have been thrown out there. But evidence of God's blessing when Potiphar recognizes Joseph's skills and abilities and puts him in a managerial position. He's not even Egyptian. The blessing of God is apparent in Joseph's life because he is with him. We see the extent of his responsibilities. Look at verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So his managerial skills extended beyond the household to maybe accounting or taking, uh, keeping track of crops, of livestock. I mean, it extended over the whole estate. It says that he left, in verse 6, all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Scholars think the food he ate might have just been because it was some ritualistic Egyptian approach to food, and he's not going to let the Hebrew take care of that. Everything else, though, Joseph has complete, complete oversight. The passage states how God blessed Joseph, and as a result, all who were in that household were blessed as well. Even his pagan master could see that Yahweh was blessing Joseph. And let's be clear, that's no small thing for an Egyptian to acknowledge Yahweh. The Egyptians had gods for everything. Tha, the god of learning in the moon. Ammon, the hidden god of Thebes. They had gods for the sky, they had gods for the air, they had gods for the ground. Osiris was famously the god of the Nile. Pharaoh was seen as a god himself, Ra, the god of the pharaohs the God of the sun, the God of order, the God of the kings, the God of the sky, Ra. Yet we read in verse 3, his master Potiphar, Potiphar, even having, having in his name some reference to their deity, even he saw that Yahweh was with Joseph, and the Lord, Yahweh, caused everything to succeed in his hands. He knew it was Joseph's God, and not Ammon, not Osiris, and not Ra, who prospered him and his household. Dear brothers and sisters, do not underestimate what unbelievers see when God blesses you. Be a blessing to your employer by maintaining your Christian character. Be a blessing 
to your neighbors by walking with Christ. Be a testimony to those who witness you in your trials. God's blessing of Joseph was never limited by the particular circumstances, whether he was in the palace of Potiphar or in the prison. How could a person be blessed as a prisoner in the confinement of a jail? Well, look at verse 21. Even in jail, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I want you to appreciate how much is at stake for the keeper of the prison, especially when we know a little bit about Pharaoh. We know about his fickleness. This keeper of the prison had a lot at stake. Yet it says in verse 22, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who are in the prison. Whatever was done there, I mean, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. That's how much power was given to Joseph. The keeper of the prison, get this, paid no attention. No attention to anything. Uh, Moses, the author, is really trying to make it clear how God has blessed Joseph. He paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God's blessing is not inhibited by the actions of people against us, even being unjustly accused, falsely put in prison. But God can still bless in those unjust situations. God's blessing doesn't depend on circumstances. God's, God blessed Joseph, and he did so in every situation, so that ultimately Joseph would be a blessing for others. In fact, he's this is a bit of a crucible, a, a honing process that will make him ready for what God has next for him. Joseph doesn't know that. Really, God's blessing of Joseph in this light was an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant itself. He would become a blessing to the nations by his leadership through the famine. God was with Joseph in his blessings. We could see it very plainly here. God is also with Joseph in his testing, in his trials. Amidst the blessings that Joseph receives because of God's special presence, he also has to endure some real challenges, severe trials. There are actually two trials that we can note in this episode. Now, the trial of temptation by Potiphar's wife is an obvious one, and we'll spend some time there. But there is another test that comes before it. I wonder if you've thought about this or have noticed this. That would be the test of power and the test of authority. Few people handle these well. When we're given authority over other people, influence over other people that can control the ease of someone's life, this is a test. And Joseph is given this test in two instances. How will he use this power? That's test number one. That's challenge number one. First in the Potiphar's palace and then in the prison. Because God was with Joseph, he used that power for the blessing of others. So pause and ask yourself, how do we use the authority we're given? And most of us have had some sphere of influence. If you're a parent, you have lots of power and authority over people's lives. How do we use this? But there's yet another trial, another challenge that we're so aware of in this passage. That's the more obvious test, which strikes at the senses, the sensuality, 
sensual temptations, things that we feel, taste, touch, see, hear, experience physically, they're among some of the most difficult to endure, especially for the young. But the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 6, the second part of verse 6 now. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast his eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, we can be sure because we know the story. Joseph has incredible genetics. He has a beautiful great-grandmother, Sarah. He has a beautiful grandmother, Rebecca, and a beautiful mother, Rachel. He himself, he's a physical specimen. And Potiphar's wife becomes relentless trying to seduce him. He's a slave. He's their property, and that would not be uncommon to use slaves this way in these days. Joseph's withstanding that constant temptation. It does provide for us a bit of a model for the ages that we should take a moment to analyze. It'll help all of us in the battle with sin, especially sensual sin. Notice how this unfolds in verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, and his argument's very important because we have to have our minds right about what sin is and think in terms of what we might do if a situation arises. That's wisdom. And he has obviously thought this through. And he speaks this, he says this to her. And notice his reasoning, because this is timeless for all of us, young and old. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, he says. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you. And the reason why, you're his wife. That's why. So he's saying out loud what he's already thought about. He already knows. He knows the standards. He's got that figured out. Because when the, mo- when the moment arises, being sensual beings, we get weakened in those moments pretty easily. So he has to have his mind straight about this. You are not my wife. You are another man's wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His first response is regarding the person in front of him, the situation that arises. You're not my wife, and you're someone else's wife. This is certainly applicable as we think of battling sin in our own lives, especially sensual sin. To already have in your mind, understand the standards God has for us, because those have to be, if you have a fighting chance, it has to start there. That's why I think everybody ought to think about this in their own lives, especially when you think of the area of pornography and how pervasive and damaging it is. I think people sometimes, although they know it's sinful, they think it's not as bad as it could be, except for the fact that every person in one of those pictures or videos or whatever it is, they are created in the image image of God, and they're somebody's child. Maybe they're somebody's spouse. And you likewise, oh, I'm single, it doesn't matter. Well, do you want to be married someday? Because whatever happens outside the bonds of marriage, that's adultery against the one you will marry. It's really before us all the time. So we have to think this through first when we're not in the presence of the temptation to have any opportunity when the temptation arises. But the second thing he says is what's most important, most impacting. The second part of verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See what Joseph gets? That's the heart of fighting sin. Recognizing that sin is at its base Rebellion against God and his standards. 
boy, this is much different than Judah, is it not? Thankfully, he realizes that all sin is ultimately against God. And thinking like this will help all of God's children, as we certainly will face many temptations. It's David who captured this idea himself, a man who understood failing against sin. And in Psalm 51, David famously says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He says, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Even with this approach, though, that we see modeled by Joseph, it doesn't stop Potiphar's wife. So though Joseph is strong one day, he might not be the next if this keeps coming at him. Look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. Now she had taken it to a physical length. She grabs him, assails him physically. What could he possibly do now? He left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. He dropped it off and ran out of the house. He started with a right understanding ahead of time of what God's standards were and could see how this wasn't, this, he couldn't do this thing. But now it's gotten so real and so pressing. He doesn't stick around to analyze it anymore or make an argument any longer. He runs. Sin tries to grab him and he leaves. You have to wonder if Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, didn't have this episode in mind when he wrote, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are certain sins, especially sensual sins, sexual sins, you got to get out of the situation. you got to run from it. Perhaps there are some sins or sinful temptations that could be around that we can withstand in a certain way. Maybe some teaching is happening. You're sitting in your university class, and it's something obviously blasphemous, but you could stand against that. You're not tempted to think that same way. The, the full armor of God is protecting you. But there are other sins where you got to run, and this is one such sin area that you've got to run. Sensual sins are like this. They, you can be thinking right, but then you're, you're being a sensory being can get drawn in. The longer we linger on something, the more difficult it is to fight it off. The weaker we become. That's the nature of sensual temptation. Our feelings and our urges are very strong and it can warp our minds. Let me use an analogy with you in the realm of sensuality. When I'm more balanced and disciplined, I'm self-controlled to a degree about my eating. Now, I know that I can't do certain things because I'll just... I'll lose balance, and it's a matter of stewardship, health and such, in that way. I'm not saying it for you, but for me, that's a challenge. So there's certain things I just won't even go to the place. I just don't go to buffets anymore, honestly. I'm not telling you you shouldn't. I'm just saying for me, there's no way for me to be balanced and moderate when I go to a place like that. I know it. I want God to give me victory over it so I could sit in any buffet in the world and never be bothered. But at this point, i got to flee from it. I just don't go to it. The longer I linger in those settings, the less chance I have to stave it off because my appetite, even if it's falsified in my mind, starts to rise. We have a pantry in our house, and my wife does a great job of trying to keep the stuff out of it that I shouldn't eat. But every once in a while, I'll go in there. I don't know why. I know why. But I'll go in there, and I'll stand in there, and I'll say, 
okay, I'm not hungry. I don't need, and I'll even talk it through. What, what do I even do? But the longer I stay in the pantry, and she'll hide stuff in the lower shelves because she knows that men generally don't look and move things. So she'll put stuff in the lower shelf, and I'll check in the lower shelf. Does she have the Oreos there? Wait a minute. I went in there all strong and thinking about it, and it's been a good day, but now I'm going to go in and blow it right there in the pantry at that moment. Sensual sin is like this. If you stay around in the environment, eventually it's going to wear you down. Joseph got out of there. He'd done everything he could do. Now, what is the last thing? He runs out of there. It's a wonderful lesson for us. It's a good picture for us. Give no opportunity is the way he tried to attempt it, but even in that case, she went after him. Tried to avoid the situation, I'm sure, but ultimately he couldn't. So the situation arose. He didn't linger. He was deliberate. He was abrupt. He was decisive, and he got out of there. The greater lesson is, again, about God sustaining Joseph with his presence. Whether it's a time of blessing or it's a time of trial, God was with Joseph. God is with you. The root of all blessing and all strength is God's special favor, his grace. And that's the underlying truth of the whole of what we see unfold here in Joseph's life. Now, there's much for us to glean from Genesis 39. We've seen just a few things. Again, I wanted to keep it simple. But I would be amiss to ignore one of the most glaring features of Joseph's life so far. I referred to Candlish earlier. Listen to what he says that will help us think along these lines. He wrote, It is almost impossible not to regard Joseph as sustaining more than any of the other patriarchs a sort of messianic character, executing messianic offices and passing through messianic experiences. You see what he's saying? There is something of Christ that we learn from Joseph that's not, it's not covert at all. It's very clear to see. He said further, resemblances of a more or less typical nature cannot fail to be observed between Joseph and Christ and between his varied life and Christ's. I want you to think about this with me. The Lord was with Joseph, Nicodemus, meeting the Lord Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. John chapter 8, Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. In John sixteen thirty two, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Joseph, you know he was humiliated on multiple occasions as a servant, as a prisoner, sold out by his own brothers, made a slave and even a prisoner. In Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Joseph, even in those situations, was made to prosper as a servant and as a prisoner. Isaiah, the suffering servant passage describing the Messiah. For all the suffering, there's this one line, the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He'll be successful in what he has set out to do. Joseph's master was very pleased with him. Joseph's father was very pleased with him. His master Potiphar was very pleased with him. The jailkeeper was pleased with him. In Matthew 17, 5, God the Father says of God the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Joseph was made to be a blessing to others. Joseph was a blessing to his family, to the Egyptian master and his household. He was a blessing in the jail. 
He was a blessing to the other prisoners, to the jail keeper. Joseph became a blessing to Egypt, then to Israel, and then to the known world. Who's the greatest blessing ever? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, the blessing of everlasting life from Christ. Jesus says of himself in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Joseph was also severely tempted, yet without sin. Now we're not saying Joseph was perfect, but the picture we have here is to show the stark comparison to chapter 38 with Judah in so many of the other chapters. God's special favorable presence was upon him. He was tempted like Judah, but did not sin. Tempted terribly and regularly because of the place he was in, ultimately by Potiphar's wife. In Hebrews, we read of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Joseph was falsely characterized and falsely accused, lied about from his own brothers. He was lied about by Potiphar's wife in an egregious way. In Mark chapter 14, he's standing in front of, standing in front of Pilate. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple. False accusations. Jesus endured those as well. Joseph did not offer a defense of himself when he was accused. He didn't mount an argument against Potiphar's wife. Mark 15, the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. In Isaiah 53, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Joseph betrayed by his own brothers. They threw him into a pit. And even though he spoke the word of God to them, they sold him off. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, even though he spoke the word of God to them, denied afterward by Peter. Joseph suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. First the Ishmaelites, then sold to the Egyptians, thrown into a prison by an Egyptian. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. Joseph won the respect of his captors. Potiphar saw that God was with him. The jailer could see that God was with him. Pharaoh would come to recognize that Yahweh is with Joseph. Jesus is on the cross and the centurion looks. Saw the earthquakes and what took place in the crucifixion. They were filled with awe and the centurion said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Joseph is numbered with the transgressors as a slave, as a convict in prison, among thieves and robbers in the jail. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Joseph evidenced his knowledge of the future through the dreams that God gave him at that special revelation. And the dreams he had and described came to pass with 100% accuracy. Jesus said in Matthew 24, among other places, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He says further, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men, 
they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Joseph was tested by power. He was given tremendous authority in Potiphar's house, tremendous authority in prison. All of this set him up to have tremendous, tremendous authority in the known world under Pharaoh, alongside of Pharaoh for all practical purposes. The devil comes to Jesus, tempting him with all the power in the world. Joseph gave up his life for the saving of many people. He spent the bulk of his prime years in the service of others, in preparation, in giving up of himself. He was taken from all that he knew and loved. He was made to suffer along the way, both physically and relationally. Ultimately, he went through all of that so he could be in a position to save his family, to be a blessing to the world. Jesus gives up his own life that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said most profoundly, perhaps, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, without question, the episode we're reading concerning Joseph teaches us many things. We see the root of all blessing and strength that we have or he had is because of God's special presence. But don't miss, the Bible's telling a story that's unified. And even 1,800 years before Jesus came, under Moses, the Holy Spirit pens for us this story of Joseph that so clearly parallels what God will ultimately do, finally do, through the greater Joseph, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are once again amazed by the magnificence of your holy word and all that it communicates to us. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us, uh, teach us a great many things, that our gaze would be lifted even higher in our worship of you as a result of what you have so clearly taught us about Christ, and also what you have put on display for us that's so practical in our everyday fight against sin. O oh Lord, strengthen your people, encourage your people today, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals in response. 534 is a hymn about our walk with God. The elders will prepare the table, so let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of 534.